In our examination of the afterlife, in the 13 Principles of Faith, of course, we're up to principle number 11, which talks about reward and punishment, and primarily reward and punishment in the afterlife. So we've talked about the afterlife in general, and the nature and the journey of the soul in particular, and I think we've come a long way. We've spoken extensively about the nature of the soul, where it comes from, what it is composed of, the five different components of the soul, what are its tendencies, what is the nature of its bond with the physical. We spoke about what happens after you die in a general sense, about the timeline. We spoke about the general concept of reward and punishment and the difference between reward and punishment here versus in the afterlife. In the next couple of episodes in this series, we will be focusing exclusively on the particulars of what happens to the soul and a bit about what happens to the body after death. Now, this is a scary subject. A lot of people are a little bit uneasy to talk about it. But I think it's one that we all must study and prepare for because there doesn't really seem to be any way to escape death. This is the fate of all of mankind. It's what we all have to look forward to, or maybe even dread. But certainly a thinking person must think about it and try to prepare as best as they could for this eventuality. And we'll try, to the best of our abilities, to explain what we have to look forward to and how to best position ourselves for that time. Now, although this subject may be a bit terrifying, I think it promises to be interesting, and more importantly, it's going to be useful. It's interesting because this is a subject that we don't really discuss very frequently, and there's all sorts of interesting esoteric information in this subject. But it's also highly useful, perhaps even almost indispensable for a thinking person. Readers of my book, Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp, are familiar with the Talmud's four-pronged advice for defeating the Eight Sahara. The Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, page 5a, that if you want to engage with your foe, with the Sahara, you do it in four stages. You start off with fighting and struggling and agitating the Sahara, the evil inclination, with the Yetzir Tov, with the good inclination. You have a good inclination, use that to fight the bad inclination. And if that works to defeat the Sahara, that's fantastic. But if it doesn't work, then you study Torah. And if your study of Torah is able to defeat the Sahara, fantastic. But if that doesn't work, you recite the Shema. And if you're able to defeat the Sahara with reciting the Shema, amazing. If that doesn't work, remind it of the day of death. The Talmud tells us that there are four different ways, four different approaches to defeat the Sahara. And in the first three, it says, well, it may work. And if it works, then fantastic, your job here is done. But if it doesn't, you have to move on to the next approach. The fourth and final one, reminding it of the day of death, 
The Talmud does not conclude and say, well, if that works, great. If not, try something else. Implied from that is that this is a sure way. It's guaranteed to work. Ruminating, thinking about the day of death, about our demise, the Talmud tells us it's the sure way to resist, to repulse, to quell the Yitzhahara. Similarly, the Mishnah, chapter 3 of Perki Avos, reminds us, visualize, look at three things, and you won't do any sins. Know from whence you came, know to where you're going, and know before whom you are destined to give an accounting and a reckoning. You came from a future drop. You're going to a place of Rima Vitolea, worms and maggots, and you're going to give an accounting before God. King of all kings, the Holy One, blessed is he. So our sages tell us unequivocally that it's very helpful to think about this subject, even though we're a bit hesitant to do so. But I want to understand the subject more broadly. And to do that, we have to go back to the beginning. We claimed, I think with abundant evidence, that death is the destiny of all of mankind, of all of humanity. And the question is why? Why is it so inescapable that we're all going to die? Why is this an inseparable part of the human condition. Why can't we just live forever? Wouldn't that be better? We know, of course, the Almighty, He operates with kindness and forgiveness and goodness, and He wants to bestow positivity, goodness, pleasure upon us. Why must we all go through this crucible of death? And the answer lies at the very beginning with Adam and his unfortunate sin. The state of Adam, the state of mankind, of humanity, prior to the sin was very different than it has been ever since, with one lapse, as we shall see. The most authoritative source on what happened is the Nefesh HaChayim, the book authored by Rabbi Chaim of Valajin, section 1, in chapter 6. And I'm going to read to you a selection here from the footnote. He tells us that before Adam's sin, Adam had free will all right. He had complete free will to choose good, or God forbid, to choose the opposite. After all, That's the goal of creation. The Almighty wanted to cede some decision-making to humanity. And therefore, he gives humanity free will. You have the choice to do what you want to do. So Adam had free will. And of course, this is evident by the fact that Adam indeed made a choice and sinned. But Adam and his free will are very different than us and our free will. Adam, unlike us, did not have a force of evil within him at the time, what we call the Sahara. Maybe there are other names for it as well. Forces of evil, that's what he calls it. 
Adam did not have forces of evil within him at the time. Within him, the composure of Adam, it was just good. It was just straight. It was just upright. It was just, it was just holy. In all of his matters, Adam was solely good. There was no admixture of evil. Now, there was, of course, evil, but the evil was external. It was a distinct entity separate from Adam. And this is the key line. Adam had free will to enter into the forces of evil. I'm just translating what he says. Just like we have free will to jump into a burning furnace. Can you jump into a fire? Is that within the parameters of your free will? Yeah. But you have zero inclination to do that. There's nothing within you that says, Oh, I really want to do that. Oh, I crave to do that. We don't have that desire. And in fact, the opposite is true. We're terrified of it. It seems like an awful idea to even think about, to even consider, to even entertain. Adam's desire to sin was precisely like that. He had nothing within him that was arousing him to do that. In fact, the only thing they had within him was repelling and resisting that. The arousal to sin was all external. Not like it is today that we have a Yetzirah within us that tries to seduce us and tempt us to sin. The Yetzirah today is within us. And it makes a person, it deludes a person to believe that what the Yetzirah wants, which is bad for us, the Yetzirah convinces us that what the Yetzirah wants is actually what you want. That's the nature of man post-sin. There's this mixture of good and evil. And he adds, not just within man, within all the worlds and all the cosmic spheres, there's a mixture of good and evil. And that is the definition of the tree of knowledge. It's not called just the tree of knowledge, Eitz Hadas. It's called the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Eitz Hadas Tov Vara, good and bad. This tree, this choice, was a choice to create a fusion, a mixture, an enmeshment of good and bad. In the striking words of the Talmud, when Adam sinned, some of the poison of the snake began to course within humanity. Now, it's a separate question as to why did Adam do it? What was he thinking? Why did he jump in the fire? And I speculated in my book a reason why he would make that unfortunate and just inexplicable decision. But putting that aside, what happened since? Since then, there is mixture. There is confusion. There is dynamism of constant change and flux. Man is marked by inconsistency. Sometimes we're good. 
We favor the good within us. Sometimes we're bad. And we flip-flop. We ping-pong between good and bad. Bad to good, good to bad. And even when we do good, our good deeds are kind of tainted with some evil. Yeah, it's a good deed, but maybe there's some evil motivation or intent or motive or thoughts that are attached to the good deed. And even when we do a sin, we favor the bad within us. Maybe there is a speck, a scintilla, a kernel of holiness in our bad deed. We're a mixture. Thanks to the consumption from the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And everyone is affected. Even a completely righteous person. And the words that he uses. Imagine there's a righteous person, completely righteous, in his entire life, did not do any sin. Not only that, did not say any words that were not righteous. Of course, that's really hard to imagine. But it's almost impossible to imagine that a person who has done only good deeds should have every deed be pristinely good without any mixture, any involvement of bad. That not only all the deeds are good, but the quality of every deed is completely pristine. It quotes the verse in Koheles, in Scripture, in Ecclesiastes, There's no righteous person in the land that does good and does not sin. Even if someone does good, and they're doing only good, there could be some sort of flaw in the good deed. That is all a product of this confusion, of this very unnatural reality, this chimeric reality that we have since Adam's sin. We have good. That's maybe our basis. But we've all this bad within us and all this good and bad is now mixed together. And it's very hard, almost impossible, not impossible, but it's almost impossible that someone should live a life and be totally flawless. Now, what are the consequences of this? What changes now that humanity with this big hodgepodge mix of good and bad? So the first thing it tells us is, well, the result of a human life is going to be a total mess, right? It's hard to do the accounting. Imagine being the accountant where the assets and the liabilities and the accounts receivable and accounts payable are so intermeshed with each other, it's hard to figure out what's what after someone dies. They're brought to a judgment. The name of this judgment is an accounting and a reckoning. There's a lot of calculation down to the most minute details to figure out what is the status of this person. Because again, we have the deeds. Some deeds are good, some are bad. And then we have the subcategories, the deep understanding of every fine element of a person's deeds and and speech and thoughts going down to the most fine and minute details, all the motivations that they had within them. Now, I mentioned that there was one lapse since Adam. Adam did the sin. 
created this whole mixed state. And that endured until Sinai. At Sinai, for a brief fleeting period, there was an end to this mixture. There was a rectification of this sin. There was a removal of this poison and venom. That's the Sinai experience. Didn't last very long. With the sin of the golden calf, a bit more than a month later, there was a restoration of the status and standing of Adam after his sin. So this is, of course, very valuable for us to understand what happened with Adam, what happened with his sin, and why is the state of our species, humanity, why is it such a confusing state? Now, this relates to the inevitability of death. What did God warn Adam? The day that you eat from it, you will surely die. You will surely die. So we think of it as a punishment. You don't listen to God. You disobey God. He's going to punish you. He's going to kill you. It's not a punishment. It's not a curse. Rather, God is revealing to him that if you eat from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, the result of that is this mixture. You're no longer just good. And as a result of this sin, there's going to be bad, evil within you. And that's going to demand a cleansing, a removal of this evil. The only way someone can be a candidate to receive divine reward, perfect reward, is if they have the being that's capable of absorbing this perfect reward. Again, the Almighty created us for our benefit to bestow goodness upon us. But in order for us to be recipients, to be worthy candidates to receive this divine goodness, we have to have a vessel that's worthy of absorbing that divine goodness. And now, thanks to Adam's sin, the vessel's been corrupted. And therefore, there's going to be a need to refine, to cleanse, and to restore the pristine nature of humanity before the person receives reward. And this is the nature or the, the, the mandate, the reason why the consumption of the fruit necessitates death. How is a person cleansed? How is all that mixture undone? How is the evil removed? It's done by death and by the post-mortem cleansing. Now you'll notice right after Adam's sin, Adam was banished from the garden. Why? The verse says, now perhaps he will extend his hand and he'll take from the tree of life and he'll eat and he'll live forever. Now what's the problem with man living forever? After all, like we mentioned, our basic understanding of God is that he wants to bestow goodness upon us and death is a bad thing. 
So what's the problem if Adam consumes from the tree of life and lives forever? Why does it bother? What's the problem? What's the flaw in the plan? Let Adam consume from this tree and live forever. Why is death to Adam's and our benefit? The answer is because if Adam were to consume from the tree of life after he ate from the tree of knowledge, he would live forever and that would preclude him from achieving his cleansing and the concomitant preparation for reward. And he will never be able to undo that sullying and tainting. Absent death, the evil that he imbibed will forever be clinging to him. And thus, Adam is banished from the garden, is locked out of the possibility of eating from the tree of life, and that is all for his benefit. Now, the Talmud lists four people who never sinned. We mentioned it's really hard to not do any sins. And even if someone doesn't do any sins, it's really hard for them to not have any of their mitzvahs, any of their good deeds be tainted by with some little bit of evil. But the Talmud lists four people that managed to pull it off. And the only reason why they died was due to the counsel of the serpent. Talmud tells us the book of Shabbos, on page 55b, four people died as a result of the counsel of the serpent. And they are Benjamin, son of Jacob, Amram, father of Moshe, Jesse, father of David, and Kilov, son of David. There are four people that also died, not as a result of their own choices, but only as a result of the original choice of Adam. The definition of man since Adam's sin is that there is a force of evil within him or her. Most people, they compound the problem by not just having the potential of sin, the potential for evil, thanks to Adam, but they actually increase that evil within them with their own deeds. But there were four people whose death was solely the removal of the evil, thanks to Adam, Everyone else has to do that cleansing plus the cleansing for their own sins. Everyone needs to die because since the sin of Adam, there is a mixture of good and bad within every person. Thus concludes the piece of the Nefesh Chaim in gate number one, chapter number six. Now, what he reveals to us is, uh, I think, a major discovery. Death is a necessary component of human life, and it's all for our benefit. Death is for our benefit. 
because it is the removal of the effects of Adam's sin, the vestiges of evil from upon a person. And even if someone's never sinned, never yielded to temptation, the mere existence of this force that encourages sin and that exists within a person, that is sufficient reason for them to need some sort of cleansing in death. Thus, death is for our benefit to cleanse us, to decontaminate us, to shake off those forces that inhibit us from being perfect and pristine. This is the destiny of all of mankind, at least until death is banished forever. There is going to be a point in history, there is going to be a changing of the epics of history where evil itself is going to be destroyed. Until that point, until the Yetzirah is slaughtered before the righteous and the wicked, like the Talmud tells us quite memorably in the book of Sukkah, page 52a, in the future, the Almighty will take the Yetzirah, that evil that Adam absorbed, and the Almighty will slaughter the Yetzirah in front of the righteous and in front of the wicked. To the righteous, it will appear like a large imposing mountain. To the wicked, it will appear like an insignificant strand of hair. And everyone's crying. The righteous are crying by saying, how did we conquer and overcome this terrifying mountain? And the wicked, they will cry and they will say, how did we not conquer this flimsy strand of hair? There is a point in time in history where that evil is going to be removed from humanity, purged from humanity and from all the worlds at large. But until then, death for humans is inescapable. Like we mentioned, it's quite obvious, the more someone compounded their evilness within them by allowing the Yetzirah to run amok, and sully them more and more, and savage their soul with sin. If someone doesn't have just a token evil, like the four sinless greats, someone has a lot of evil mixed in with their soul, obviously for them, the cleansing is going to be more comprehensive, more multi-layered, much more intensive. You may recall we spoke about the 903 different types of death. The Talmud tells us, the book of Brachos, page 8a, there's 903 different levels of death. And the worst one is called Ashkara. And the most lenient one is called Nishika. And Ashkara is akin to disentangling thorns that got all mixed up and entangled in a tuft of wool. And the shikah is like pulling a hair out of a glass of milk. Now, we spoke about this in the past in the context of the whole notion of variability 
of death. If death is removing the evil from within us, well, some people can have a lot of evil to remove, and it's going to be a much more difficult process. And others are going to have just a symbolic token evil within them. It's very seamless. You just remove it. But there's another deep point that I mentioned in my book. I must say it's a point I'm rather proud of. We think of of death as being separation of body and soul. And depending upon how righteous someone is, that's going to determine how enmeshed their body and soul are. But we think of death as just removal of body and soul. More specifically, the soul is within the body. And you take out the soul, and the body is now a useless hunk of flesh and bone that begins to rapidly decompose. But if you read this Talmud very carefully, it's clear that something more nuanced is happening. It gives us two analogies of death. You have wool, but in the wool, there's thorns that became entangled. And you want the wool, right? You want the wool. So you have to remove all those thorns, but they're so mixed in. They're so enmeshed. You got to pull really hard. It's, it's a nightmare to remove it, to disentangle it. You want the wool. It's sullied with the thorns. The second analogy is you want the milk. It has a hair in it. You glide the hair out. These are two descriptions that we have of death, thanks to our sages in the Talmud. If you think about it, in both examples, there is the desired element, and then there's the contaminant, the waste that's being removed. You want the milk, you don't want the hair, you pull the hair out of the milk. You want the wool, you don't want the thorns, you try to disentangle and remove those thorns. I would have thought, well, death is you remove the soul from the body. And therefore, the analogy should have been the other way around. It should have been the opposite. You remove the desired elements from the undesired elements that you leave behind. So the analogy is backwards. Why is it telling us that you pull the hair out of the milk and the thorns out of the wool? It should have been the opposite. You pull the soul out of the body after all, right? Clearly, our sages are telling us that death is about cleansing. The soul is what you want. You're removing the contaminants from the soul. And the harshness of that process hinges on the strength and intensity of the presence of the evil and those factors upon the soul at that time. Now, it says tell us that the day of death is also a day of great judgment for a person. There's a lot of calculations to figure out here. And of course, this is the reason why the righteous are always thinking about it, planning for it, preparing for it, making sure that they are ready for it. And one of the marks of the righteous is a bit of uncertainty and perhaps even a dread 
maybe we won't endure in judgment. The Talmud bestows some of the most lavish praise upon the great Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. It tells us that his entire life, he never did any idle chit-chat. And he never walked four cubits, ten feet, without Torah, without studying Torah, without wearing tefillin. No one ever beat him to the house of scholarship, to the academy. And he was so involved with Torah, but if it was an unclean place, he never thought of Torah. He was the last to leave the academy. He was always the first to arrive. He never made an announcement that it's time to leave the academy except for twice a year. Erev Pesach, the day before Pesach, and Erev Yom Kippur. And there was no bit of scripture or Mishnah or Talmud or Halacha or Agatic teaching or a fine nuance point of Torah or of the scribes or any exegetic teaching, Kavachomer, Zereshava, or even a gematria, or even the wisdom of the speech of understanding the angels and the demons and the waves of the palm trees. He was able to know everything. He was complete, total command of all of Torah and all of wisdom. Not the small things, not the big things, the Kabbalistic and the Halachic, he knew it all. We're also told that he was a genial person, beloved by all, kind to all. No one ever greeted him before he greeted them. The most exquisite, angelic human being that we would ever imagine. Nevertheless, on his deathbed, the Talmud tells us the book of Brachos, page 28b, the students came to visit him on his deathbed, and he was crying, and they said, why are you crying? You're going to die, but what do you have to worry about? And he responded, imagine I was being brought before a human king. Human king is here today, tomorrow he's dead. He gets angry at me, doesn't last forever. He punishes me, doesn't last forever. He kills me, it doesn't last forever. And I could cajole him with words, I could bribe him with some money. But imagine I was being judged by a human king. I'd be terrified. I'd cry. And now, they are bringing me before the king of all kings. The Holy One, blessed is he. No term limits. Around forever. If he gets angry at me, it's eternal. If he punishes me, it's eternal. If he kills me, it's eternal. And I cannot cajole him with words or bribe him with money. And here's the critical line. Moreover, there are two paths before me. One that leads to paradise. And one that leads to Gehenna, to post-mortem purgatory. And I don't know which path I will be led down. How can I not cry? The mark of the righteous is that they're always thinking about this, always trying to prepare. The Midrash tells us that the mark of the wicked is a certain 
fearlessness, ignorance, apathy towards this judgment. Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai was worried. King David was worried. But the fools and the simpletons are not worried about this at all. Now I want to read to you another piece. This is from the classic work, Rashis Chachma. This is at the end of chapter 12 of the section that deals with fear of heaven. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he does talk about what is the nature of this judgment, specifically at the time of death. And he writes, he says, I'm going to reveal to you some of these secrets just because you'll find it helpful and useful because maybe it will awaken your heart to be more fearful of God, to live your life in anticipation and preparation for this judgment. And he tells us that when someone's about to die, there are four angels that come to visit him. A ministering angel, an angel of death, an accountant, and one that is that person's individual angel. And they say, okay, it's time for you to go back to where you came from. Remember, the soul comes from the lofty spheres. Now it's time to go back home. But the soul resists. It's not my time yet. I'm not done here. And the soul gets to witness the angel of death. And it's not a pretty sight. And the soul has a measure of prophecy before he dies. Our Sadists tell us when God tells Moshe, no man can see me and live, implied from that, our sages tell us, in someone's death, maybe they can have a heightened level of prophecy. At that time, the soul testifies upon himself about everything that they did in this world. They testify, and God signs and seals their testimony. And the tzaddik, the righteous person, releases his soul to its owners, to God, and the wicked resist. They display recalcitrance, even at the very end. And then he talks about the judgment of the grave, and we mentioned this briefly in the past. The angel comes to the person. It's apparent that the soul is still there, according to one version of what I read. The soul is actually restored into the body in the grave. And there is this interrogation of the person. They ask the person, what's your name? The person testifies and says, I don't know. And then it proceeds to describe the nature of this judgment. And if you are brave enough, I would encourage you to read it yourself. I'm skipping around here a little bit. Again, it's Reishis Chachma, the gate of fear of heaven, the end of chapter 12. 
It continues by telling us that this judgment in the grave is actually harsher than Gehenom, a subject that we will yet, please God, discuss. But there are a few ways to avoid this judgment. If someone lives in the land of Israel and dies Friday afternoon right before Shabbos, that person is spared. Now, obviously that we can't necessarily control. But it tells us that if someone loves charity and loves introspection and is willing to accept rebuke and criticism and loves to bestow kindness upon other people and loves to invite people into their home and prays with devotion, even if they die outside the land of Israel, they can avoid this judgment. And God judges man in the in the grave right after death. And there's a whole description of what God tells the person. I created you. I made sure that you would survive. Your whole life I've been taking care of you, giving you food, sparing you from suffering. Did you do anything for me? Did you study Torah for me? Did you do kindness for me? And if the person indeed studied Torah and engaged in kindness, they're able to survive this judgment. But if not, there are five angels there corresponding to the five books of the Pentateuch of the Torah. One of them strikes him and one of them counts. And the other one, the third one, withdraws light and fire from his body like a furnace. I don't know what that means. It doesn't sound so pleasant. And the fourth one takes these bitter herbs and uses it to, I guess, enact a form of punishment as a result of someone stealing from their friends. And the fifth one goes and strikes their parents. Look what you raised. Now, this is really hard to read. But I think with our framing... It's very helpful to understand that all this is for our benefit. We have a soul. The soul is pristine and holy and perfectly calibrated to be able to receive divine reward. But it needs a cleansing. It needs to be readied for paradise. And the length of the cleansing in Gehenom and the duration and intensity of the cleansing in the grave, it all is contingent upon how much cleansing is actually needed. And again, the purpose of it all is to prepare the soul for its ultimate destiny in paradise, in Gan Eden, in Olam Abba, again, subjects that we will talk about yet further. Now, there are layers ingredients of cleansing. And as a person, or as a soul, I guess, gets upgraded level to level in paradise, which could take years, decades, even centuries, every layer that they are upgraded, there's a more fine, more refined degree of judgment 
read it as cleansing. There are some more, I would say, descriptions. If you want to read more about this subject, I want to encourage you to get a book called Minchat Yehuda, which has been translated into English. Chapter 88, a very memorable chapter, where he assembles from our sages some more descriptions of what the nature of this judgment in the grave is, very close to the time of of death. And specifically the way he frames it as they're trying to shake off the soul any contaminants. Again, the, the larger idea is the soul needs to be cleansed and all those contaminants need to be removed. The hair in the milk, the thorns in the wool, it has to be shaken off. And how it's done and how it is achieved is told quite memorably in that book. I want to tell you that this whole subject, it's been a while since we talked about this. I debated a lot as to whether to say it. I don't want to scare anyone. I don't want to scare myself also. But ultimately, I think it's important to share it. If someone doesn't want to listen to it, maybe this is something they can ignore. But I think it's better to know to know what our sages say about this, to know what we need to do, to know what we need to prepare for, that's better than to be blindsided. Our sages tell us we should repent the day before we die. Well, when's that? Nobody knows. And therefore, every day, we should repent. Every day, we should try to cleanse ourselves in this world, to the best of our abilities. Every day, try to examine ourselves to see, are we spiritually fit for this encounter with God in judgment? We never know when that day is, and we must, we're encouraged to do what we can to make sure that we are ready for that time. In the upcoming Editions on this series. We're going to try to go a little bit deeper into what happens to the soul. We talked about the purpose, really, of death and the immense benefit that we all receive with that. It's better for Adam to not be allowed to eat from the tree of life because then he'll have no way to perfect himself, no way to cleanse himself, no way to fix what he had wrought. So long as we are under the influence of Adam's choice, death is inescapable. But we are encouraged to have a head start in this process in this world. We're going to talk more, please God, about the next layer of cleansing, a place affectionately known as Gehenom, what that means, the different layers of it, the advancement from stage to stage, what we can do to perhaps avoid the intensity of that, how we can prepare for that. We'll talk more about paradise and what that's like. Please, God, we'll talk about reincarnation, which is another 
way that the soul can be cleansed. There's also a category of people whose souls get cut off. That's actually something that appears many times in the Torah. Someone does something really heinous. The idea of a soul being pure and and prepared for reward, prepared for eternal delight, that itself may be undone. Our framing right now is the soul is there, it's good, it's just mixed in. The the wool has some thorns in it, the milk has some hair in it, but there's still a soul there. There's still something to cleanse. There are people whose souls get cut off, who can never get Olam how that works, and the various gradients of it. And of course, the subject that we're really here for, that is something we need to talk about at length, the subject of Olam the upcoming world, the world that we so deeply covet, the restoration of our soul to its pristine state and the bestowing of divine goodness upon our soul. As always, my email address is Rabbi Walby, spelled with two Bs. The word Rabbi is not the word Walby. Rabbi spelled with two Bs. Walby spelled with one B at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions and your comments. I'm looking forward to continuing in this Torah 101 series on the 13 Principles of faith.